Thanks for pressing play. Today, we have a very special episode. We actually made a change in our regular publishing calendar to bring you this episode. As you well know, the United States of America is facing some meaningful challenges right now. And in my opinion, is in need of more deep, meaningful conversation about our future. Our guest today is one of the most qualified, experienced, and highest profile law enforcement leaders in America. Dr. Cedric Alexander is back. Dr. Alexander had a 40-year career in policing, public service, and mental health. He's the former police chief and public safety director in DeKalb County, Georgia, where he actually led five departments, including police, fire, and emergency management. He's also the former police chief of Rochester, New York. He served as a federal security director in the TSA, where he was the executive in charge of one of the U.S.'s largest and busiest airports, DFW, in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, Dr. Alexander also served on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and... Chief Alexander sits on the board of the Innocence Project, a uh, nonprofit that I think is extraordinary and I'm proud to have supported for a very long time. Um, Dr. Alexander is also the author of the hit book, The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. Now, uh, you often see him on TV or even up on a stage giving a speech. But unlike the TV, where you only get a few minutes with him, today we go deep in an incredibly thoughtful conversation in a way that you only can on a real dialogue podcast. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different. And now, hey ho, let's go. Uh, well, Chief, it, it sure is great to see you again. How are you? I've been great. How about yourself, Chris? I've been well. And I, I really, uh, you know, your hairdo is a very, very sexy hairdo, I must tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's called a no hair at all do. <laughs> it's, it's very becoming on you, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say the same thing about you, too. Well, thank you, sir. Now, I'm, I have many things I would love to dive into with you today, uh, but before I do that, is there anything sort of off the top that's been on your mind that you'd like to start with? No, nothing in particular for me, Chris. You know, there's so much going on in the country, and uh, you can just about start anywhere. I think we'll strike up a conversation, but wherever you, you know, wherever you want to start is cool with me, but uh, it's a lot going on in the country. Sure is. Well, maybe we could start here. Uh, it's a concern of mine that has sort of been building over time, and uh, I've done a bunch of reading of late, and my, the, my concern in this regard has increased as I've tried to educate myself. And so maybe we'll start here. As you think to the midterm elections in 2022, or in, uh, 2022 and then you think about the presidential election in 2024, would you th say that we are more likely to have violence around those two events now or less likelihood that we would have violence around those events now, given what's happened over the last handful of years? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. It's something that I ponder and think about a lot 
being a former lawman myself, and if we think about what happened on January 6th, whatever you want to call it, insurrection, riot, a tour of the Capitol, however you want to define it in your mind, uh, clearly there are some things there that happen that create a great deal of pause and concern from this country, and actually on both sides of the aisle, to be perfectly honest with you. But, I, you know, as we prepare to go into this midterm, there's a lot of inks on both sides. People who are Democrats and Republicans, certainly it's being observed around the country that uh, the Republican Party is is making strides to do what they can to ensure a win in November of the House and the Senate. And in their own way, sort of Democrats as well. I think you have politics being played out on both sides here, and how those uh, how those elections end up. I think we need to be prepared as a nation psychologically to be able to accept uh, whatever those elections uh, results be, because we got to get out of our minds and we have to do it now while we still have time to make sure that there are fair and equitable and balanced uh, opportunities for people to vote across this country. I'm from the perspective because the right and the left are so divided uh, that it would, it's, it's very difficult to me for me to take sides with one over the other because I think politics get played all the way around. What I'm concerned about is not their politics, but this nation as we know it. Because for us as a nation, we are United States, and it certainly does give the appearance to a lot of our friends uh, and foe around the globe that we're divided. In a house divided, we cannot be. We have to be strong. And we have to come together and try to find solutions for many of these concerns, but they have to be genuine concerns from both sides of the aisle that will allow opportunity for this nation, this country, and for Americans in this country to continue to grow and prosper. Uh, this is a very, very difficult space we're in. You overlay that with a pandemic. You overlay that with changing attitudes around employment in this country, people leaving jobs at record numbers, uh, because in spite of the pandemic, it certainly has opened up the minds to a lot of people that they can do something different other than make minimum wage and be happy. And uh, a lot of this gets intellectualized uh, but the reality of it is, if you ask those people on the ground who are providing those services to us in restaurants and 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 uh, nightclubs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you will find for for them uh, the work being grueling, the work being taxing, the work not paying adequate uh, salaries for them to be able to take care of their uh, families. But I think, Chris, we can place ourselves in a very unique place. It all depends on how we want to see ourselves as a nation. But I think we have to see ourselves and figure out all of us. And I'm not even going to talk about the politicians because the politicians are only in those seats because they were voted in by somebody's. So it's not 
uh, who the politicians are, whether on the right or the left. We need to take a look at ourselves as American citizens and making sure that we are putting sending people into to to Congress and to other local offices who truly have the best interests of the American people in mind. And it can't be about party, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. It has to be about the humanity of people in which we're being uh, uh, elected to serve. So we all know what the challenges are out there across this country in people homes in their neighborhoods. We clearly see the divisiveness that is taking place. We certainly do uh, see the the uptick in white nationalism in this nation. And we see the uptick on the other side that we're just divided, period. And none of that is going to work for us. Uh, because if we don't find a center, regardless of what beliefs you may have about people, places, or things, if we do not find a center, we really make ourselves very vulnerable. And we're going to see the vulnerability of that and the, and the uh, uh, volatility of it uh, this this fall if we don't figure out how to make sure we have honest and fair and equitable elections for everyone. But we cannot get there if there's one party pulling against another party. We can't get there if we're removing uh, voting booths in many cities across this we cannot make it difficult for people to vote. Look, I'm on the right. I'm a Republican, but I'm a centrist. But I'm also one, too, that's an American first, period. And I have friends uh, like myself who feel the exact same way. So I'm not concerning myself with the people who are being elected. What I'm concerning myself with is the voters we have to take the responsibility and vote for who you think the best person is uh, to go into office and to be able to give you what you need for your community. Because every community in this nation is very different. Depends on where you live. Right. Uh, and depends on sometimes what side of town you may live on. But I think it, as, as, as Americans, we have some way and somehow if we don't find our center back, it's going to make it, and this continues to go on too long, it's going to make it very, very hard for us to get back get back on point. That's my concern. That's the concern of a lot of people as well. It is mine as well, very much so. And from a business perspective, forget for a minute the potential problems to our democracy, forget for a minute the potential violence that could occur, as we have seen in the very recent past in some of our major right. cities and, in, of course, in Washington, as you mentioned. But from a purely business perspective, I've been trying to sort of sound the, the alarm to say to business leaders, hey, look, um, the economy is pretty good right now. Yes, there's some problems here and there, but the reality is things are going pretty well for a lot of businesses now when they weren't not that long ago. And um, maybe the biggest threat to your uh, 2022 business plan is the fact that our major cities are going to be on fire uh, when the violence occurs around the midterms. And so I guess with that as a backdrop, do you think that we can get to a point soon where more Americans love the country or they love the country more than they hate each other? And as a result are willing to back down off of 
uh, violence instigated by both sides and try to have a more uh, civil dialogue about things as opposed to some of the horrific things that we've seen in, in the not too distant past. Well, you know, my thought is this is, is Chris is both sides of the aisle in my humble opinion, struggle for good leadership, leadership that is not grounded in the party that you belong to leadership that is grounded in the fact we have to work together to find a way or we're going to continue to be in this very risky posture that we're in. Right. And because we don't need violence in our streets perpetuated by the right or the left. We don't need another summer of 2020. And here's what it's going to take, Chris. It's going to take leadership from both sides of the aisle. And right now, there appear to be a lack of that. A lack of leadership. And I'm talking about humanistic leadership. I'm not talking about policy leadership. I'm not talking about legal leadership. I'm talking about leadership that comes from the heart that regardless of what side of the aisle you, you are on, that leadership will set the example for everything else in this country. If I'm at the top of that food chain, my attitude, my disposition, my tone, my tenor, every verb that I use, everything that I say, people are, are, are clenching on to it. Because quite frankly, I truly believe the American people want to be at peace with all of this because there's so many other things that are going on in their life. But until our leadership at every level of government, federal level, state level, local level, you have to provide the leadership in your community that shows a sense of compassion and humanity towards everyone, regardless of what your political beliefs may be. I cannot merely follow you just because you're a Democrat. I can't just deliberately follow you because you're a Republican or independent or a Green Party or whatever. I have to follow people who has a voice and a compassion for humanity. And because that's what's going to bring us together. That's what's missing in all this that we're hearing about today. And we need role models that are going to be consistent role models on the right and on the left, because now the divisiveness is just so clear and present that it is scary. But here's another piece I'm very afraid of, Chris. Think about the young generations that are out there in high school and college. It'll be interesting to me to know what they're thinking about this current leadership that we're providing in this space we're in in this country right now. And I don't think any of them young kids would lead, would lead this way, whether they were Republicans or Democrats. I think these young people are sitting back waiting for their turn, and I, I hope it comes soon, but waiting for their turn to do something different, right? Because we are not going to get through this being divided. We're not going to get through this if people continue to believe that our elections are, are, are fake, are phony, because to put that out there and don't have the evidence to support it, that is dangerous to our democracy. And anybody on the right or the left will tell you that. 
And anyone who perpetuates those types of stories is really not working to the best interests of any of us. If there's an issue, let's confront it and go after it together so that people can see us leading and trying to find resolve. But we cannot continue on this path that we're on where everything that people are hearing, people don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know what to believe. They don't know what a fact is anymore, right? Let's go to the election integrity thing for a second. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, Chief, but I know that a, a meaningful percentage of, of folks uh, in your party, the Republican Party, believe that um, Joe Biden is not the legitimate president because there was meaningful fraud uh, in the last election. And I'm also to understand that um, Republican leaders in Republican states around the country, Georgia being an incredible example where you served for years, um, where there were three recounts done, that there's been no meaningful uh, evidence of fraud. Of course, there's been mistakes and they find a few hundred here and there, but there's not thousands, there's not hundreds of thousands of dead people voting, some of these other things that people have been saying. And so... How is it possible that we don't, we can't agree on a fact, and then we can have different opinions on the fact, but in this case, a meaningful percentage of Republicans, and I'm an independent, uh, I vote Republican and I vote Democrat, um, still believe that they, we did have a lot of election fraud when it appears that we didn't. Yeah. And it's been proven over and over and over and it's been proven in federal courts. It's been proven through a number of recounts. We got to back off of that because that is becoming very concerning and should be alarming for all of us uh, because people have to understand and hear the truth. We're almost at a point where even if I show you that, clear evidence of anything it's still not believed that is dangerous brother that is merely dangerous and that's a leadership issue and i hope that this current administration in our government uh and those that are in congress really find a way but to work through this but I mean, heck, we can't even get together on who should wear masks and who shouldn't. It's ridiculous. If I go to the current administration for for a second, Chief, Biden ran. I mean, I watch this stuff fairly closely. He ran on an agenda of uniting the nation Mm -hmm. on a number of things. Uh, His approval rating, I haven't looked at it super recently, but is very low. One of the lowest that uh, a president has had, particularly this early Mm -hmm. in an administration. And in particular, Mm -hmm. I watched his speech and listened very carefully to his speech on January 6th on the anniversary of the attack. And while I thought he made some good points, I was looking for the olive branch. I was looking for him to some way try to extend a hand to Trump voters and supporters. 
And I understand he's mad at the former president. And I understand he believes that the former president instigated what happened. And I think there's probably some reality that I watched the former president's speech a year ago and watched it all on TV myself. And I I think he, he, he is at least partially, if not meaningfully, to blame for what happened. But regardless of that, Joe Biden, in my opinion, on the anniversary of that event, used more divisive language, used, used the word fight. Uh, and, and I did not hear an olive branch to um, Trump supporters. And so I'm just concerned that, that the political parties are now in a position, uh, doctor, where they've realized that they can monetize hate, hate and turn it into votes. And they're in cahoots with the media. Because, of course, we have partisan media now. I think when you and I were growing up, most media tried not to be partisan. And, of course, most media we experience today is highly partisan. And so you have politicians who monetize hate through fundraising and votes. And they're in cahoots with the media who the more angry we all are at each other, the the more time we'll spend on Facebook and the more time we'll spend on Uh, consuming news and the like. And so we have this spinning up of more and more, and we're now at a state where more Americans think other Americans are are the greatest risk to the country than people outside the country. Mm -hmm. And so I I guess with all of that as a backdrop, how do we unhook this sort of escalating monetization uh, of hate? Well, here again, this is going to have to be a leadership issue. But Let's take it out of the federal government for a moment, Chris. Let's even take it out of state government. Let's go to local government anywhere in your country, anywhere in part of the country, USA. You know, the old slogan, all politics is local. I think we all agree that is very true. And I think one of the most important things that American people can do for themselves in the midst of all this confusion from our leadership is that at a local level, they have to create a voice for themselves at a local level. They need to ask for accountability at a local level. What are we going to do here in any city USA to make our, 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 our community better, safer and, and, And our democracy is not in question, right? It has to start at that local level. And here again, whether you sit on the right or the left, until leadership, if you and I, Chris, are in major leadership positions, whether at a local level, state level, federal level, if we don't provide the role modeling that is needed in this nation to bring this nation together, And if we're going to make profit off of dislike, if we're going to make profit off of dissension, then we're all heading down a very dangerous path because it is getting to a point where people cannot differentiate between the truth and a lie. Now, um, let me bounce this off you. And if this is me being overly pessimistic, then uh, uh, please tell me. I sort of had this aha over the holidays, which was, I'm not sure government can fix this because they're benefiting from the escalation in hate and divisiveness, as is the media. And so the aha that I had is, well, if government won't do it, then maybe citizens have to. 
And, you know, with my background as an entrepreneur and as a marketing executive and so forth, I think about it also from a business point of view, which is what's the role, in your opinion, of let's just say community leaders, elected or not, they may they may be an influential person in their church or they may be they may do you know, they may be a wonderful business person in their community that contributes as well as what do you think the role of our major business leaders uh, the heads of our banks, the heads of the big digital companies and so forth. If you're not to pick on anybody in particular, but if you're Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and you're sitting here going, wait a minute, there might be real violence around the midterms. And if you start to do Chris goes to Christmas future around 2024, there's a scenario you can get to um, that says that's going to be a very bloody election or post-election in the United States. Um, and so if you're Tim Cook or, or you're a local community leader at whatever level, what role do you think those types of folks should play, especially if you sort of agree that our more senior uh, elected officials are actually part of the problem? Well, you know, you know, what you just stated in the form of a question is really a reframe of what I've been saying for the last number of minutes is that. If our leaders can't provide us with the leadership that is needed, it has to come from the people who vote for these leaders. Now, if you and I live in the same community together, whether we know each other or not, and we share the same interest, the same concern, chances are if I'm out of a job, you're probably out of a job. Chances are if my taxes are too high, your taxes are too high. Chances are if I don't feel safe in the community, you probably don't feel safe either. We share more in common as American citizens more than anything else. But we got to get to a point where we just can't wait for leadership to show up. We have to take individual leadership steps to begin to think about and talk to and consult with others, community leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, whether it's in the synagogue, our churches, or whatever the case may happen to be, we have to look up in our communities doing things that are going to help make things work. This will elevate itself to city government, to state government, and subsequently into our federal government because we all are systemically connected. But if the, but if the American people are waiting around for some great uh, 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 individual to show up and just resolve this uh, is probably not going to happen because what needs to happen is that all of us in our communities and our local communities, we got to come together first and decide what's for the best of this community because we're fighting over things and we're being becoming angry with each other about things that sometimes we don't even clearly understand ourselves, but somebody told us not to like it. So therefore, I don't like it. Uh, but I truly believe it's going to have to be the American people who bring us to a place of trying to resolve this very complex issue, which I truly believe, Chris, is not that complex. If we can get our feelings out of the way for a moment, and think about what's best for the nation overall. We got a lot of issues. Yes, we have immigration issues. We have a pandemic issue. We have a, a drug and 
a drug issue in this country. We have poverty issues in this country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we don't have is communities that are coming together and saying, we're going to fix what we need to fix here locally and hold those accountable in elected offices to provide the leadership for everyone. We do that at a local level. It spins off into a, it spins off into a state level, which subsequently has, a, because we all are so tied together, will find its way uh, into our into our federal leadership. I'm not pessimistic about this because I think while we have this time and time is moving fast and if we don't get this right, not just the election, but the attitudes of people, if we don't get this right by November of 22, depending on the outcome of those elections, we're going to see angry people on both sides of the aisle. And then we're going to go into 23 in a very difficult space. And then we're into 24. And that's where it becomes very concerning and should be concerning for all of us because people need to to feel and they need to feel for themselves, not because of what somebody told them. But you even if you have to go examine it for yourself, People have to feel that the elections in this country are not being undermined. And just because someone tells you that, and I don't care what side of aisle it's on, but just because someone tells you that, you have to look at what are the facts that are being reported, right, through through credible news sources. And there's, there's still credible news sources that are out there. They still have to take accountability for what they put out. Some do, some don't. And But all the ones I've been affiliated with over the years are credible. The CNNs, MSNBCs, the Post, the Times, all these are credible outlets. And, 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 and now when people hear me just call them, they say, well, they're all on the left side. And well, I mean, I can call credible resources also a, a, a media on the right side, right? Uh, and they could be credible too. But then we also know that we have media that is certainly very questionable and appears to perpetuate uh, a lot of these lies. And that cannot be acceptable to any of us because this can't just be mere entertainment to draw numbers, People are listening. This People is not a video game, uh, Chief. <laughs> this is not a video game. People out there are listening for the truth. People are listening. There are people who are hungry for the truth, but they don't know what to believe. But I am not. I'm going to support our media across this country. But like anything else, they certainly have to be responsible. That is our constitutional right to have free speech. And for how do we learn about what's going on in the world is through our media sources, right? And everybody shares some responsibility in this, uh, but not just the media, everyone, but the people that who are truly going to make a difference in this country are going to have to be people at their local level in their local communities working together regardless of what side of the aisle you want because right now 
it, it's it's who do we get behind? You know, people didn't like Trump. People don't like Biden. You know, I mean, people don't believe this side. People don't believe that side. We got to believe in something, but it's got to be the truth. But we got to believe in something, but it has to be the truth. And how do I find the truth? I don't get my truth just because Chris said that's what it is. I got to make go further if I need to, to find out what the truth is. It's called being peer reviewed. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And being accountable to learn your own truths if you need to, if you if you are uncertain and not wait for somebody to lead you around. But we individually have to take individual responsibility. And people that we put in office hold them accountable to go up and serve us, not just based on party affiliation, but what's based on humanistically that is best for everyone. Yes. Everyone. Now, in in that regard, of course, I also very much want to speak with you about uh, policing. The numbers I see suggest that there's been a 30 to 40 percent increase in uh, murders in the United States. Does that triangulate with um, some of the data that you you and, and, and your brethren of, of uh, uh, police chiefs are seeing? Well, we are also seeing an uptick and have seen an uptick this past year of attacks on police officers in this country as well, too. Yes, and we've had a few recently where they were cops were just shot sitting in their cars, ambushes, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Now, that is a red flag of something very critical going on in our environment. And it also suggests to me that if our people who are emblematic of of and are sworn to to uphold the law, right? and to go out and provide public safety are coming up under that kind of attack, then we all need to be very concerned, right? And because I'm not going to mix that with nothing else but the fact that we cannot allow a society to get to a point that the people who are out there protecting us becomes targets, we got to fix this and we got to fix it quickly because if that officer is is working under that type of threat, then you and I don't have a chance. We were already heading in this direction of an uptick in crime even before COVID. What COVID did in many ways, it is not the sole reason, as some will say, for the uptick in violence. It may have perpetuated, it may have been part of advancing this violence, right? But the reality of it is what COVID did, lots of people out of work, a lot of people stressed, kids who would normally be in school, weren't in school for a whole year. And we're talking about a lot of kids, particularly in our urban communities, right, who oftentimes their education was already challenged, and when now they're out of school, in theory, doing this virtually, in theory, right? And they have all this time on their hands. And then we see bail reform in this nation. People who are being, and trust me, I'm all for the fact if somebody get arrested 
on some BS charge, they shouldn't have to sit in jail for 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 a long period of time really because they can't put up a $20 bond. I think we all will agree with that, right? But when it comes to violent criminals, they're going to need to go back and they're going to need to revisit this whole bail reform thing so that it not just works for the bad guys, it has to work for the community as well. Because some of these people that are being released, Chicago is a perfect example. Some of these folks that are being released have been violent for a very long time. You put an ankle bracelet on them. What do I care about an ankle bracelet when I'm going to go back out and do what I want to do anyway? So we got to revisit this whole bail reform. Well, and, and here, Chief, in California, we had a situation where our governor released, I believe the number, I don't have it directly in front of me, but the number that sticks in my mind is 63,000 violent criminals during, uh, you know, the beginning of the COVID crisis. And there just didn't even seem to be that much outrage about this. Uh, I I mean, there aren't even words for me to describe how angry that that makes me. And so I don't understand this world that we're living in, whether it's the bail issues or the release issues or, or sentencing. I mean, we have a situation, another one here in California, where uh, Robert Kennedy's murderer is trying to get out of prison. And and there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, Sirhan Sirhan's been a model prisoner and he's been in prison all these years. He's an old man now and we should let him out and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, he took someone's life. He, he assassinated someone. How... How are we even, why are we even having this conversation? And the governor said that, you know, he's indicated there's a scenario under which he gets out. Well, uh, am I nuts or are we losing our mind on on, uh, crime and punishment? I think we need to take a step back. Because if we look at the criminal justice system, Chris, historically, it certainly has not been fair to people of color. That's what perpetuate a lot of this bail reform and these types of things. It's not that it was not needed. They just went too far with it, right? And you can't do that. Here again, no, somebody sitting shouldn't sit in jail on a shoplifting charge for, for weeks and months on end because they can't put up a bond. However, someone who has a violent history, I'm sorry, you got to get a, you know, we got to be tougher than that. So let's talk about Sirhan Sirhan. I'm quite sure he's, he's you know, it's f- almost 50 years later now, right? And he's probably an old man that uh, got all kind of other, all kind of health issues, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But it's the message we need to send in this country that regardless, a life sentence means just that a life sentence because it becomes the symbolism because once we begin to become weak over here we're going to continue to loosen that belt on everything else now granted yes we have to show compassion yes we have to show uh 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 that people have had opportunity to rehabilitate and those types of things. 
That is true. But when it comes to violent offenders, we cannot make the mistake of putting these people back on the street. Sirhan, Sirhan, likelihood of hurting somebody is probably zero to none. That is not the issue. The issue is I want to send a, 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 a signal that if life imprisonment, that's exactly what it means. And then if you're not going to give people life imprisonment and stick to it, then redefine the uh, penalties for those types of crimes, right? Redefine them. And if someone is in prison and it has been proven through DNA evidence and others that that person was wrongly put in prison, we need to do everything that we can to get them out as quickly as we can. I sit on the National Board of the Innocence Project. In our primary function, we have oversight of that whole that whole organization. And I'm going to tell you what has just been so painful and hurtful for me is the number of people, Chris, who are out there incarcerated. And thanks to modern technology, people have been released and should be released. That's something entirely different. The worst thing we could ever do to anyone is put someone in a jail or prison and they've been wrongly, wrongly convicted, right? And that is just wrong. We cannot do that. However, people who have been found guilty, unless some other circumstances, you know, come into play. If it says life, you do life. And it ain't about 30 years later that that you grown into this, that and other. It's this. We in this country got to stick to something. And if that's not what we want to do, then change the penalties. Because American people are confused. They're confused. And this is not a right or left issue to me. This is an issue about doing what is right for the American people so people feel safe, people can move through life safely. And safety, quite frankly, is a perception. And if I feel safe because my community has provided me with the best public safety if my, my community has provided me with a DA's office that is going to be fair and equitable to everyone, but not going to take these serious crimes lightly, I want to be, I want to feel safe just like everyone else. And then we have our individual responsibilities to make sure we keep ourselves and our neighborhoods safe as well. But they got to go back and look at this bail reform in this country. Because we cannot continue to let these violent perpetrators out on the street who are now, when you look at their record, they're killing innocent people. They're hurting our police officers, et cetera, et cetera. We cannot do it. But at the same time, the flip side of that, we don't need to have people sitting in jail on, on BS charges for yes. months on end yes. because they can't get a bond. Yes. Now, on uh, on the Innocence Project, uh, first of all, let me thank you for your work there. Um, that's extraordinary. And as a side note, just so you know, uh, my wife Carrie and I have been making donations to the Innocence Project for uh, many, many, many years because we, mm -hmm. like you, think it's painful, especially, as you mentioned, in cases where a person was convicted maybe on eyewitness or some other thing in a pre-DNA world or when DNA wasn't anywhere near or forensics for that matter, mm -hmm. not just DNA, 
Uh, we're nowhere near the way it is now. Uh, even recently for myself, as you may remember, one of my best friends was murdered two years ago. And so I've had a front row seat to this investigation. I could never have understood, Chief, the level to which our sheriff's officers, our sheriff's CSIs, how they processed the car and the creation of this thing they called the, the, the no touch toe and what happens when a car or a vehicle that's involved with a crime gets studied and the incredible sign, like it is incredible what we have today based on my layman's experience of seeing it up front. And so my point is if we have somebody who's convicted, who's maintained their innocence and we now have the technology to prove their innocence this is tremendously painful to see these people in prison. And, and my understanding is um, there are a lot of people for whom this has been the case. And that's uh, part of, or a big part of, you'll tell me what the Innocence Project works on. But I'm, I'm curious how you think about it. You know, at the end of the day, all of us, regardless of who we are, regardless if we are liberal or conservative or everything in between, if you were to ask all of us, do we want to feel safe in our communities? everybody would say yes. If we were to ask everyone, do you want to see innocent people go to jail? The majority of the people would say no. They don't want to see that. We don't have a perfect criminal justice system, but we can have a better criminal justice system. To just stop and say that we're not perfect is not good enough. What we can say is yes, no, we are not perfect. But what we can do is continue to improve, particularly as technology continues to advance so that those crime scenes that you're talking about, they are very technologically driven. People who have the expertise to 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 gather forensics evidence in a way that we have never been able to do it before, even beyond DNA. But we have to make sure we have ethics built into all of that. Ethics for me as an investigator is that I'm going to make sure that you read your rights. I'm going to make sure that you make statements that are free and of your will. I'm going to make sure uh, that you're treated uh, rightly and not set you up. And then you need a DA's office that is not going to withhold evidence towards someone who could be innocent. Right. People have to have a sense of confidence that every aspect of their criminal justice system. Right. Every aspect of their criminal justice system is fair and is truly blind. And do we have work to do? Yes, we do. Do we have a lot of bad people in jail that needs to be in jail? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we need to keep them there. But here again, when it comes to violence in this nation and and when people are released on these no bonds or very low bonds or whatever the case may have to be, that's not working in the best interest of the community. Now, um, of late, of course, we've had some very big cases and trials and therefore verdicts in this country. Um, Ahmad, the Ahmad Aubrey case, of course, comes to mind mm -hmm. and the, um, the Rittenhouse case comes to mind. Um, is there anything, uh, that you want to say about either of those? Well, 
you know, in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, that was just a horribly tra- tragic event that took place that should have just never happened, period. Should have never happened. And, um, and even from the beginning of that case, you had a district attorney there who did not uphold her responsibilities as a DA. And uh, whatever is coming her way is probably going to be very deserving because the people depend on us who are in these leadership positions uh, to be able to do what's fair and equitable for everyone. That did not happen. And you think she's going to suffer the consequences of not acting on that case appropriately? Well, not only not just not acting, uh, but her failure to carry out her responsibilities at a DA with uh, some some type of responsibility. And uh, but they'll deal with that in the state of Georgia as it relates to her. And uh, but I have to tip my hat to Governor Kemp and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation uh, at the direction of the governor to look into this. And when GBI picked this up and they're a fine group, I had the opportunity to work with them over the years when I was in DeKalb, uh, they took on that investigation and they ran with it. And within short order, uh, they clearly saw some things were wrong here. And then one thing led to the next thing. So I applaud the governor for getting involved and I applaud GP, uh, GBI for the great work that they did. Uh, but that was tragic. That was horrible. Uh, and far as I'm concerned, justice was served. Now, in the case of Rittenhouse, I think the one thing that we all have to learn from this is that when those types of, when that type of civil unrest occur, and particularly for my police brothers and sisters that are out there, we have to always make sure that we're being in the middle of the road because police took a big hit in terms of their own uh, concerns about lining up with Rittenhouse, 18-year-old kid walking down the street with an AR-15 and nobody says anything to him. Had that been a black or brown kid, let's be honest, that would not have went down that way, right? Let's just be terribly honest. So the reality of it is perception is everything. And we as police officials have to make sure that we do not let our personal feelings get into play, but we have to do what's fair and equitable to everybody that's involved. And we have great police across this country, and we have men and women who are out there at this very moment who are doing it right and who are doing it with a great deal of, of, of honesty and vigor. And I support them every day, all day. But we always have to be mindful that everything we do, everything we say in our actions, uh, we're going to be observed and we're going to be scrutinized. And whether we like it or not, I'm sorry, it just comes with the territory. Yes. And we have to be sure we're holding ourselves at the highest level. And, uh, and we're going to continue to support our police in this country. But we just have to be sure that we give the appearance at all times. Uh, and we have to literally uh, make sure that we're being constitutionally fair to everyone because perception uh, goes a long, long way. 
Yes. Now, in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, one of the things that I was hoping would happen as a result of that, uh, and maybe I'm naive, Chief, you'll tell me, was that we as a country would have a dialogue about the things that I think um, were sort of brought to light with that, which is in the event of significant civil unrest, where there's violence, where there's looting, where there's small businesses uh, being being attacked, where where people are being attacked. And clearly the government and the police are not in a position to deal with all of it, which is what appeared to be the case uh, when Kyle showed up with his AR. What role should a private citizens have in protecting themselves, protecting their homes, their families, their businesses, or in this case, if you if you believe the narrative, uh, you know, his father lived there and he wanted to be there to protect his community. And that's what he said he was doing. And so in a situation like that of civil unrest where the police can't handle the whole situation, how, how do you want private citizens to think about what they could and should and what their responsibilities are and are not? Yeah. Well, let me be clear about something. Uh, anytime that you have civil unrest, you just don't get up and go to out in whether it's your community or neighboring community or neighboring state and assume that you're going to fix this mess because that's not your job nor your responsibility. Now, Carl Rittenhouse was found not guilty. He got a not guilty verdict by his peers. Case over. Be done with it. Period. I'm not going to even uh, comment on that. He went to the judicial system. He was found not guilty. It is what it is. Now, in terms of going forward in something like this, what I would say to the American people, that we all have the right to protect our homes and be in our homes, to protect our homes. The Constitution will stand with you. And in most cases, if not all cases, the state law will stand with you. We all have the right to protect ourselves. But once we start integrating ourselves into the community as if we're somehow going to be there to 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 make things right, that is not our job. And neither are you trained to do that. That's for your local authorities to do. And if I was a police chief in any city USA and a group of guys show up and say, hey, uh, Dr. Alexander, we want to be on your team and, and we want to push these people back. Thank you. Thank you. But I need you to get on the sidelines somewhere and take note and observe, be witnesses, whatever, whatever. Right. Because that's what we are trained to do. And we're the only ones out here that's going to do that. And you have to be point blank clear. There are people who want to do right by their communities. There are people who don't want to see this type of civil unrest. And none of us do. But you and I just should pick up our weapons and run up to San Francisco and say, hey, we're going to help fix this problem. No, that's not the thing that you want to be. Thank you for that. So let me see, uh, doctor, if I can synthesize what you're saying, that um, we have the right to protect our homes. But in a situation where there's civil unrest, we don't have the right to be vigilantes. And we don't have the right to take uh, what heretofore is a law enforcement role uh, and say, we're going to protect our downtown streets. Or to your point, we're going to go from, in my case, Santa Cruz up to San Francisco and bring friends and guns and bats and I don't know what 
to protect the situation because the police can't. We don't have the right to do that. No. And you don't need to put yourself in that position to do that. That is what our local authorities, that's their responsibility. If they need backup and support, they have the states, they have the feds, they have all kind of resources available to them. And uh, so, I mean, that's the way it needs to be done. Stay home, protect your own property, protect your own business. But you do not need to be out on the streets because that's the kind of help that law enforcement don't need. What law enforcement needs for you is to be a good citizen. So that, and, and the other piece of this is police departments need to understand that as well, because it becomes a perception issue that you're partnering up with one side, but not with another side. You need to appear to be balanced in everything that you do, but not just give the appearance of being balanced, but being balanced because the justice, everyone has a role to play, right? So I appreciate people having the willingness to want to protect, but that is not their responsibility. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, doctor, before we wrap? No, I think we had an opportunity to talk about a number of uh, good subjects. Time goes fast. We've been well over an hour. Time it, it goes just really went fast. poof. I feel like we're just five minutes or 10 minutes in. Uh, well, I know. I'm, I'm I deeply know. appreciative that you came back, doctor, uh, very much so. And, uh, and you're always welcome back. Your perspective on our country is a very powerful and a very unique one. And uh, I, I value our time together. Thank you so much. And let's do it again, Chris. And, and again, thank you for having me on your show. And uh, my hat's off to your listening audience as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. We'll see you soon. We'll see you. All right. There he is, uh, former police chief, Dr. Cedric. Alexander, and his new book is The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. Also, Dr. Alexander is represented by uh, my friends at the Speakers Bureau, Robin Wolfson Agency. That's the Robin Wolfson Agency. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Malibu Milk. Uh, Malibu Milk is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. And this stuff is incredible. I drink it pretty much every day. And it's, it's incredible on cereal or uh, in smoothies or even in White Russians. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. That's Malibu Milk with a Y.com. And on checkout, type in discount 15 for your 15% discount. Also want to let you know that um, Category Pirates first big book, the Category Design Toolkit, Beyond Marketing, 15 Frameworks for Creating and Dominating Your Niche, is an Amazon number one bestseller, uh, thanks to you, or certainly folks like you. And if you haven't picked up your copy, go to Amazon today and uh, search for the Category Design Toolkit. Our friends at Atranet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they offer a rapid relaunch service. Check out Atre.net today. Our friends at Bottleneck.online are the distant assistant that you need. Imagine a real person empowered with technology who will take care of everything you need but will never get near you. Bottleneck.online today. Now, I need to remind you that this Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT. 
Jason DeFilippo. And Jason has a new Substack newsletter out called The Pivoteer, helping people pivot from one part of their life and one part of their career to the next. Go to Substack.com and search for The Pivoteer. Uh, Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by the handsome and talented uh, GM Simon. Our web development is done by the brothers, RJ and EX Bobis. And Cedric Burroughs does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheet to the wind. And we record on Squadcast.fm, the uh, podcast studio in the sky. Squadcast or in the clouds, in the sky, somewhere up there. (laughs) Squadcast.fm. Please uh, teach your children dialogue. Our differences make us stronger. And when we all do well, we all do well. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. And uh, love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott O'Malonic, uh, editor of Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scott. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, please stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we hang out again, follow your different.